I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 22, The Rumbling. History of Portugal is in part supported by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal. As a member, you'll have access to ad-free episodes, and you'll be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to George for signing up already. And please, give the show a rating and a review on your platform of choice. It really makes a big difference. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at historyofportugalpod at gmail.com. Last episode, we caught up with some of the events of the Christian North, and we also began to follow the meteoric rise of Al-Mansur from a low-level functionary to establishing himself as the military dictator of Al-Andalus. This episode, we will pick up the narrative where we left it off and bring the saga of Al-Mansur to its conclusion. And now, let's get started. After having eliminated Halib as a threat, Al-Mansur no longer had any use for his supposed friend Ibn al-Andalusi, who had even been appointed as vizier by this time. In 983, Ibn al-Andalusi was invited to a banquet in his honor, where he had been purposefully made very drunk. And as he was leaving the banquet, he was ambushed and assassinated. His head and his hand were then secretly presented to al-Mansur as proof of the treacherous deed. Two years later, in 985, for his 23rd campaign, al-Mansur launched a ferocious attack on Barcelona, here is how the 16th century Annals of the Crown of Aragon by Jerónimo Zurita describes the event. Quote, At this time, Count Borrell governed the counties of Barcelona and Urgell, 
and going out against the Moors who were causing much damage in his land, he gathered his army and gave them battle in Valais, near the castle of Moncada, and he was defeated in it, and more than 500 of his knights died. And the Moors followed the chase to Barcelona, where the Count had taken refuge, and they besieged the city with great fury. And due to a lack of people who could defend it, the Count left it to the Moors and retreated to the mountains of Manresa. And all those who lived in it had gathered within the entire county by order of Count Bohel to defend it and were killed or captured. And the memory of the houses and lineages that had been in that city for 200 years was destroyed and consumed. Because those who escaped that fury were taken to the city of Córdoba and scattered throughout the kingdoms and lands of the Moors. Subsequently, most of the towns near the coast were lost, and only the castles of Moncada and Cervelló remained. And although the city was the first to be recovered from the power of the Moors, it was the most fought and warred over by the infidels, and there were more wars and battles between Moors and Christians on it than on any other city, and it was won and lost by both sides many times. After the Moors captured Barcelona, not many days passed before Count Bohel gathered all the people he could from the mountains and from old Catalonia. And because there was a great lack of people, he granted military freedom and franchise to those who came with weapons and horses to follow the war against the Moors. They gathered up to 900 armed horsemen. With these horsemen and many great companies on foot, Count Bohel went to besiege Barcelona, and he fought hard battles, and in a few days he recovered it, along with all the places that the Moors had won. This was the last time, as found in the ancient records, that Barcelona was won from the infidels. And it was no small glory for Count Bohel to recover it so quickly, since losing it again in his time would have been the greatest adversity of those states." Unquote. So, a quick note. Even though this document states that not many days passed from the loss of Barcelona to its recapture, modern estimates put the reconquest of Barcelona by the Count between two to six years later. Back in the Kingdom of Leon, Vermudo II had problems of his own to deal with. See, when he was proclaimed king in Galicia, it sparked a civil war between himself and the current king, Hamidu III. During that civil war, as we talked about last episode, Al-Mansur eroded the defenses of the southern frontiers by launching a number of campaigns at the various fortresses and cities there. As a consequence of these campaigns, many Christian nobles went directly to Córdoba in embassies without consulting or really caring about the opinion of the King of Leon, who was powerless to protect their lives and property, so they rendered vassalage to Al-Mansur. Even Vermudu II himself asked him for his help, something that Al-Mansur accepted, basically making the King of Leon subservient to Al-Mansur and pledging to pay him tribute. However, the conflict between the Kings of Leon was resolved with the death of Hamidu III in 985. And by 986, it seems like Vermudu got a case of buyer's remorse and broke his pact with Al-Mansur. Predictably, Al-Mansur's reaction was swift and violent. That same year, for his 26th campaign, 
he raised the kingdom of Leon from Salamanca to the capital itself, effectively taking possession of Salamanca, Alba de Tormes, and Zamora. He then turned his attention to the Coimbra area, attacking the fortress in Condesha. After the capture of the fortress, he unleashed his army to loot the suburbs of Coimbra. But this expedition wasn't the main event. It simply served as a staging ground for his next move. The next year, for his 27th campaign, Al-Mansud launched an attack on the city of Coimbra itself. Located on the Mondego River and close to the Serra da Estrela mountain range, its defensive capabilities were notable. Because, on this occasion, it seems that Al-Mansud failed to take the city. Because he had to come back again the next year in 987. And that time, he conquered it in three days. He stationed troops there and apparently ordered the city to be rebuilt. Coimbra would remain in Muslim hands for the next 77 years. The next year, in 989, a plot was hatched by a descendant of Al-Hakam I, known as Al-Hajjad. And Al-Hajjad was supported by Abdallahman al-Tujibi, the ruler of Zaragoza and the Upper March, and Al-Mansud's son, named Abdallah, who had been staying with the Tujibis in Zaragoza. Apparently, Al-Tujibi convinced Al-Mansud's son that he was braver and more intelligent than his brother, Abd al-Malik, who was favored by his father. The plotters agreed to divide Al-Andalus, with Abdallah taking Cordoba and the Tujibi taking the rest of the marches. The plot had the support of some influential soldiers and palace servants in Cordoba, but it was discovered while Al-Mansur was away. Consequently, Al-Tujibi was executed on charges of embezzling his troops' pay. And it seems like Al-Mansur was trying to lure his son into a false sense of security by including him in his next campaign. His 34th campaign, to be exact, this time directed at the fortress of San Esteban de Gormaz. And while the campaign was underway, Abdallah fled the camp with six of his servants and joined the troops of Garcia Fernandez, Count of Castile, who welcomed him and offered his protection against his father. But this did little to dissuade Almansur from his goal of capturing and punishing his son for having the audacity to plot against him. He asked Garcia to hand over his son and made it very clear that he would not stop pursuing Abdallah until he was returned to him. But Garcia was stubborn and refused. In response, Al-Mansud attacked and conquered the fortress of Osma, as well as devastating the south of the Castilian county. These actions convinced Count Garcia that it was futile to make a stand on this, and he agreed to hand Abdallah over to his father. Abdallah was greeted and welcomed by one of Al-Mansud's servants, who assured him that his father had forgiven his act of youthful rebellion, so all was well. But as soon as they reached the vicinity of the Dodo River, he was notified that he had been sentenced to death. Abdallah appeared unsurprised by his fate, likely due to his familiarity with his father's cruel tendencies. He calmly dismounted his horse and walked towards the sword that would soon end his life. 
Ibn Jafif, a policeman, carried out the execution, decapitating him with a single swift blow. He was a mere 22 years old. Back in the Kingdom of Leon, during the same time frame, Vermudu II faced internal revolts in both Galicia and Leon. Now, we hardly know of any of the details concerning these revolts, because almost all of the available evidence for them are references in charts from both regions that mention confiscations and the redistribution of property of rebels. It seems like our old friend, Gonçalo Menge, was once again one of the ringleaders behind the revolt in Galicia, but we don't know too much more about the situation. One of the consequences of the external and internal threats faced by Vermudo was his need to improve relations with the Kingdom of Navarre. Therefore, in 991, Vermudo repudiated his Galician wife, Velasquita Ramirez, and married Elvira Garces in order to strengthen his alliance with Pamplona and reinforce ties with Castile. Elvira Garces was the daughter of Count Garcia Fernandez of Castile, and she was the niece of King Sancho Garces of Navarre. So, a pretty good marriage. She also gave birth to Vermudo's male heir, the future Alfonso V in 994. There were a series of arranged marriages that took place among the most powerful noble families of the north that I'm not going to bore you with. Overall, they forged a significant and impressive network of familial ties, connecting the royal family of Navarre, the Counts of Castile, the Counts of Saldana, the Counts of Monzon, and the Hamidu III branch of the Leonese dynasty. As we can see, the family ties between the royal houses of Leon and Navarre, as well as the prominent aristocratic houses of the kingdoms, were intricate and intimate. These relationships were not only close, but complex, and they could potentially disrupt short-term political alignments, which demonstrates the near impossibility of trying to identify permanent noble factions or stable alliances. Meanwhile, back in Al-Andalus, Al-Mansud launched his 37th campaign, once again directed at Navarre. Building upon his earlier successes at dismantling the defenses of that kingdom, Al-Mansud entered Navarre and took numerous fortresses. His campaign against Sancho II was a resounding triumph, forcing Sancho to journey to Córdoba to sign a peace accord, which enabled him to reunite with his daughter for the first time since she was married off to Al-Mansud. Great attention was given by Al-Mansud to the development and rewarding of the army in Al-Andalus. This involved the dismantling of the remnants of the old tribal levy system and the establishment of a completely professional army, mainly composed of Sakaliba and Berbers. While the Sakaliba had been employed by the Umayyads since the time of Al-Hakam I, it was only in the 10th century that they became a significant professional military force and also the most influential group amongst the palace servants. Additionally, they were increasingly recruited from the Christian regions of Iberia instead of Eastern Europe, with the best ones said to have come from the Kingdom of Leon. The Umayyads had already employed Berbers since the early stages of their reign, but under Al-Mansud's leadership, 
this practice was accelerated, with Berbers being utilized as a counterweight to the Sakaliba and the remaining Andalusian elements within the army. During the summer of 994, Al-Mansur led his army to attack the county of Castile. Count Garcia Fernandez was dealing with his son, Sancho Garcia's rebellion at the time, making the situation favorable for Al-Mansur. Due to this, he was able to seize control of the strategically important castle of San Esteban de Gormaz. Hardly taking a moment to breathe, in the fall of 994, he once again attacked the heart of the Kingdom of Leon. The capital had already been raided by him in the years 982, 986, and 988, so its defenses would have been in an abysmal state. The city was left to its fate by the armies of Ramudu II, who seems to have taken refuge in Astorga. The next year, in 995, Almansur directed his 46th campaign, this time targeting the western sector of the Kingdom of Leon, and succeeded in capturing the fortress of Aguilar, which is now known as Aguiar de Souza in Portugal. The medieval castle ruins can still be seen today in this town, which is located east of Porto. In 996, Sub, the dowager and mother of Hisham II, had become concerned about her son's future, as well as her own, since he had been reduced to a mere figurehead. They both resided in the Alcazar of Córdoba, which was also the Umayyad dynasty's treasury, built up over many generations. Sub covertly began taking items from the treasury with the help of her supporters to amass funds to secure military support against Al-Mansur. However, Al-Mansur was tipped off by his allies in her entourage, and he arranged for the entire treasury to be moved from the Alcazar to his palace city, as well as the caliph and his mother. And that put a stop to any further plotting from that section of the family. Undoubtedly, the new regime garnered significant support from the populace, owing in part to the prosperity and stability it brought, as well as its unwavering commitment to Islamic principles. Al-Mansud himself made it apparent that he was personally devoted to this cause, as he reportedly carried a Quran he had copied by hand during his campaigns against the non-believers. Additionally, he oversaw the construction of a substantial expansion to the Mosque of Córdoba in order to accommodate Berber immigrants and others. He also purged any literature in Al-Hakam's library that was not in line with orthodox beliefs. However, the cornerstone of this populist Islamic agenda was undoubtedly the systematic pursuit of jihad against the northern Christians. While previous rulers had used their leadership in the Holy War as a means of maintaining their legitimacy and ties with outlying areas of Al-Andalus, Al-Mansud took this policy to new heights. The military campaigns against the Christians were a central aspect of his political program, serving as justification for both his rise to power and his creation of new military forces that were funded through taxation. These policies were so focused on the prosecution of jihad that it was difficult for anyone to question them without appearing to go against public opinion. So you can see how clever he was in manipulating religion and tradition in order to maintain absolute power. 
And there is no better example of this policy at work than his most spectacular and well-known campaign, his 48th, as he directed himself to the spiritual center of not only the Iberian kingdoms, but also of medieval Western Europe. I speak, of course, of Santiago de Compostela. Almansud's purpose was to punish the king of Leon for not paying him tribute, and he had several Galician counts as allies who were led by Count Rodrigo Velázquez, who opposed Vermudo II and acted as a guide for the Muslim troops. Since this was such an important campaign, we actually have several sources for it, but the most complete and extensive account comes from Ibn Ithadi. As a quick note, I have replaced the medieval Arabic place names mentioned in this account with the modern place names in order to make the account a little easier to follow. Quote, at this time, Al-Mansud had reached the highest levels of power, supported by God as he was in his wars against the infidel kings. He advanced towards the city of Santiago, which is located in Iliquia and is the most important Christian sanctuary in Al-Andalus and the adjacent regions of the Great Land. The church of this city is to them what the Kaaba is to us. They invoke it in their oaths and pilgrimage to it from the most distant countries, from Rome and beyond. Quick pause here. The Kaaba is the famous black cube that is in Mecca and is considered the holiest site in Islam. Okay, now back to it. The tomb they go to visit is, they say, that of Santiago. May God have mercy on him. Who was, among the twelve apostles, the closest to Jesus, and whom they call his brother, because he was always near him. Some Christians say he was the son of Joseph the carpenter. He was a bishop in Jerusalem and traveled the world to preach his doctrine. He came to Al-Andalus and reached this region. Then he returned to Syria, where he was killed at the age of 120 solar years. But his companions carried his bones to be buried in this church which was the farthest point where he had carried out his activities. No Muslim emir had yet attacked this place or penetrated this far, due to the difficulties of access, its difficult location, and the great distances. Al-Mansud set out towards it from Cordoba with the raiding expedition. It was his 48th campaign. He entered the city of Koida, and when Al-Mansud arrived at the city of Viseu, a large number of counts who recognized his authority joined him, presenting themselves with their warriors in great pomp to join the Muslims and embark on the campaign with them. Al-Mansud had ordered the equipment of a considerable fleet at the place known as Alcacer du Sal, on the western coast of Al-Andalus, which he provided with sailors and used to transport the infantry, provisions, supplies, and weapons. These preparations put him in a position to carry out operations till the end. When he reached a place called Portugal, on the Douro River, side note, he's referring to modern-day Porto, the fleet sailed up the river to the location designated by Al-Mansud for the crossing of the rest of the troops, and also served as a bridge for them near the castle that was there. Al-Mansud distributed the provisions that were on the fleet among the army, which was thus well supplied, and they entered enemy territory. Taking the direction of Santiago, 
Al-Mansuth traversed large areas of the country, crossed numerous large rivers and various channels where the waters of the ocean flow back. Then the army reached the great plains belonging to the country of Valadarj and neighboring regions. They then crossed the Ming River and the Muslims arrived in the great plains and fertile fields. Their explorers reached the monastery of San Cosme and San Damian. They seized the fortress of San Pelayo and delivered it to plunder. And after crossing a marsh, they reached an island in the ocean where a large number of inhabitants of these territories had taken refuge. They took prisoners of those who were there, and the army arrived at the mountain of Mojazo, which is surrounded by the ocean on almost all sides. They fought there and took over those who occupied it and took a great amount of loot. After that, they arrived at the Padron Canal, where one of the oratories dedicated to Santiago was located, which, in the eyes of the Christians, came immediately after the one containing the tomb in Merit. Devotees came to it from the farthest regions, from the land of the Copts, Nubia, and others. After completely destroying it, they camped in front of the proud city of Santiago. In Santiago, Al-Mansur had found only an old monk sitting near the tomb, and he asked him why he had stayed there. He replied, to honor Santiago. Al-Mansur ordered that he be left alone. All its inhabitants had abandoned it, and the Muslims seized all the loot they found and demolished the buildings, the walls, and the church until there was no trace left. But guards stationed by Al-Mansur respected the tomb of the saint and prevented anyone from harming it. All these beautiful palaces, so solidly built, were reduced to dust until it was impossible to suspect that they had ever existed. Al-Mansud withdrew from the gate of Santiago after advancing further than any Muslim before him. On his way back, he headed towards the lands of Rmudu, son of Ardoinu, to ravage and devastate them as he passed through. However, he ceased hostilities upon reaching the country that obeyed the Confederate count serving in his army. He continued on his journey until he reached the castle of Lamego, which he had conquered, where he dismissed all the counts, whom he made parade according to their rank and to whom he distributed clothes along with their soldiers. From there, he sent a report of his victories to Cordoba. The distribution of clothes made by Ibn Abi Amir in this campaign, both to Christian princes and to distinguished Muslims, consisted of 2,285 pieces of various embroidered silks, 21 outfits of sea wool, two unbodied dresses, 11 measures of silk embroidered in gold, seven brocade carpets, and fennec skins. The entire army entered Cordoba safe and sound and laden with treasure, after a campaign that had been a grace and a benefit for the Muslims. Praise be God. End quote. The capture and sack of Santiago in 997 was ideologically the greatest prize for Al-Mansud. Several of his earlier raids had been directed against places that were not so much significant military targets as religious ones. This had been clearly recognized, and the relics of the saints preserved in Leon, for example, 
had been sent to Oviedo for greater safety before the destruction of Leon in 988. Like the previous administrations, Al-Mansud continued to pursue an active policy in North Africa, which focused on identifying local tribal leaders who could protect Andalusi interests while acknowledging its overall authority. Although there was no third power in the region seeking to take advantage of the situation, it remained difficult to find trustworthy allies. The head of a Berber tribal confederation, Sidi Ben Atia, was the most suitable candidate Al-Mansud could find starting from 988, and he established a new center at Wajda as his base. Although he was welcomed and provided with a luxurious palace in the capital, like most of the Berber chiefs, he found all of the opulence stifling, and he eventually returned to his native land. Then, in 997, he rejected the authority of Al-Mansud, prompting him to take military action. Up to this point, the Umayyad forces had only occupied Ceuta, but in 998, Al-Mansud sent his top Sakaliba commander, Wadih, with a sizable force to Morocco. Wadih was a client of Al-Mansud of Slavic origin. He became an officer in the army and was appointed governor of the Middle March with residence in Medina Sali. In July of 998, though, Wadih defeated Zidi, which prompted Al-Mansud to launch his 49th campaign in order to take advantage of this victory. Al-Mansud's son, Abd al-Malik, was in charge of this expedition. And on October 13th, the combined forces of Wadih and Abd al-Malik confronted Zidi near Ceuta, resulting in Zidi suffering an injury and escaping to the south. Meanwhile, Abd al-Malik captured Fez and was granted the title of governor of Morocco. Two years later, on July 29th of the year 1000, Al-Mansud launched his 52nd campaign. During this campaign, he faced a Christian coalition in Peñas de Cervera, composed of the troops of Sancho Garcia of Castile, Garcia Gomez of Saldana, and the forces of Navarre. Here is an abbreviated account of the battle according to Ibn Khatib. Quote, Al-Mansud never faced a more intense or difficult or bloody struggle than the battle he fought when he launched his summer campaign in the year 1000. The long period of peace that preceded it had been too long and had made men's fighting spirits sluggish and overly peaceful. Meanwhile, the Christian kings had formed an alliance and gathered their forces from all over for war. Al-Mansud faced them in the battle known as the Battle of Cervera. The events unfolded as follows. When Al-Mansud invaded Castile through Medina Sali, he encountered Sancho, who led an extremely large and incalculable army. The Galician kings and their generals had come from the far ends of Pamplona and Astorga to join him. Sancho had positioned them on the rocky outcrop of Cervera, which was in the central region of this country, and was the place he chose for his camp. This location was desirable because it was both inaccessible and impregnable, and also because it had vast provincial territories behind it with nearby sources of supply. The Christians had entrusted Sancho with the organization of everything relevant to combat, and had committed themselves not to retreat, declaring it unlawful to flee. 
Al Mansud was alarmed and did not know what decision to make when he saw the enormous number of warriors that the adversaries had, the impregnability of their position, the control they could exercise over the movements of those who approached to attack them, and the speed with which they could descend upon those who came close, as well as the spacious field that their cavalry had before them to maneuver. All this was compared by Al-Mansur to the disadvantageous position in which he found himself. He then turned to the advice of his military viziers, who held conflicting opinions. But Sancho deceived the Muslims with the unexpected rush with which he launched an attack. The battle was fought on all fronts, thus igniting a general conflict. The enemies of Allah concentrated their cavalry and attacked the Muslim right and left wing simultaneously, unleashing the full weight of their squadrons upon them. With the result, that the lines of the Islamic defenders were dislocated, and the Christians consolidated their position, attacking with greater vigor. The struggle lasted quite a while, and the critical position of the Muslims became increasingly untenable. For those who were behind the line of defenders, seeing the plight in which they found themselves, became disoriented and discouraged. The majority of them slackened, and in turn, most of them fled. The attacks were frequent on all flanks, to the point of almost making the Muslims taste the ignominious dust of defeat. The route would have continued had it not been for God's protection, the commendable perseverance of Al-Mansur, and the magnificent steadfastness with which he himself acted, despite his great alarm and inner confusion at the course of events. The state was reflected in the imperious attitude of his hands, in his groans like that of a dying man, and in the vehemence with which he repeated the Quranic prayer of return to God. The tide turned, because God aided the Muslims with his help, and with men who knew how to resist, vigorously prolonging the struggle until they repelled their attackers, so that in the face of their reaction, the fighters behind them regained their composure. Thus, the bulk of the Muslim troops after having been fighting in retreat, counterattacked, and finally, God granted them victory. End quote. In the year 1002, Al-Mansur launched his 56th and final campaign, this time aimed at the county of Castile. According to Ibn Hayyan, quote, He departed from Cordoba already ill on Thursday, six days after the beginning of the year 1002, and he took loot and captives and caused a great slaughter. But his illness worsened, and he started to return to Córdoba. But he died on the border and was buried there in the city of Medinaceli. He was buried under the dust that he had collected during his campaigns, because every time he went on an expedition, he shook his clothes on a leather mat every evening and gathered all the dust that fell. When he died, he was covered with that dust. On his tombstone, it was written, You will learn about his accomplishments as if you had witnessed them yourself. No one like him will ever emerge again, and no one else will be able to defend the borders in the same way. Unquote. So, here we are, at the end of Al-Mansur's life, and what a life it was. 
His incessant campaigns, along with his usurpation of power in Al-Andalus, definitely had an enormous impact on the political trajectory of the peninsula. And even though the constant raids and destruction instilled a real fear of Al-Mansur within the northern Christians, at the end of the day, they didn't accomplish much in the long term. Besides a few cities, the vast majority of his campaigns were focused on raids, not conquest. Because as we've seen before, the principal motivation for these campaigns was to justify his takeover of the caliphate. The cost of his ambition in terms of lives and treasure was substantial, and the military gains were temporary. And we should note that one of the most enduring results of his power grab was the significant influx of new Berber troops into Al-Andalus, and they were typically recruited as whole tribal groups. Al-Mansur's reign also marked the culmination of various trends that had emerged in Al-Andalus during the 10th century, the increasing professionalization of the military and civil hierarchies, and the concentration of military power in the hands of non-native groups. Moreover, and this is a big one, his rule was like a hammer blow to the prestige of the Umayyad dynasty, which had long served as the unifying force in Al-Andalus. In addition to reducing the caliph to a weak recluse, the other members of the family were completely marginalized from positions of power and influence. Since Al-Mansuth systematically eroded the authority of anyone who posed a potential challenge to his rule. Although this system functioned under his leadership, its future was very much uncertain under less competent management. We are going to pause the story of Al-Andalus right here in the year 1002, because next episode, we will be going back in time and reorienting our focus onto some of the lands and people of future Portugal to better set the stage for the events that will ultimately lead to the foundation of the kingdom of Portugal. Until then, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.